Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 6, A Primer on Feudalism. To understand medieval political and legal society, it is necessary to understand feudalism, or at least the network of relationships that comes to be called feudalism. The purpose of this episode is to simply provide an overview of the feudal system as a general matter, with the understanding that the form feudalism took often differed depending on the year, location, customs, and particular circumstances of any individual kingdom. And right out of the gate here, I am going to apologize for butchering both the Latin and Old English languages. I'll do my best, but if I screw it up, please do not be angry. Now, the word feudalism itself derives from the feos, or the fief, a Germanic word meaning cattle or property. In French, the word was feodal. Thus, the root word of feudalism was around long before the term feudalism was coined to describe a certain legal or socioeconomic system in the 18th century that scholars still use today, although some historians insist that the term feudalism should be avoided altogether, if not completely removed from the lexicon. But regardless of the term we use, there is a core set of ideas and principles that come together under the umbrella of feudalism, and these concepts are generally consistent across the board. What is necessary to understand is that feudalism involves societal relationships, that is, community, uh, a community-wide system of obligations and duties and connections that bind individuals and families. So while the root word for feudalism describes animals or property, the system of feudalism is entirely human, by humans and for humans. An organic legal system evolving out of the power vacuum left upon the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD, especially in the former lands of Roman Gaul eventually conquered by the Franks, as discussed in prior episodes. The, the feudal relationship is one with roots in Germanic history, but flavored with the remnants of customs inherited from the Roman Empire. And this makes sense because as the Germanic tribes moved into lands formerly under the Western Roman Empire control, the Romans and their customs did not simply disappear in a thin air. They often stayed and assimilated with their new Germanic neighbors. We spent a considerable amount of time in this series discussing the Roman influence on Germanic tribes, particularly the Frankish kingdoms. So no need to rehash that here. But one term that I have not mentioned yet that was adopted from the Romans was the precarium, or the precaria. This referred to a grant of land from one person to another, which was considered temporary and completely subject to the will of the grantor. Hence the English word precarious, that maintains a, con uh, uh, a connection with something that is not permanent. Now, the recipient of the land, of course, benefited from the grant, and, theref and therefore the precarium was also called a benefice. These grants of land were agricultural in nature and included everything that would typically be found on such land, including buildings, tools, and animals. After the Germanic invasions, these benefices were often granted by tribal leaders who were also military leaders, according to the Germanic custom. Uh, they were uh, granted to those who provided military service for those leaders. No longer was this just a generalized Roman-type benefice, but one uniquely connected to military service. 
As such, the Germanic fief, which is Latinized as Feodum, became associated with this type of land grant. In a sense, this land grant was economic consideration for providing military service to the one in possession of land, who by old German custom would have been someone entitled to deference, respect, and obedience. But as historian Carl Stevenson reminds us, to call a fief a piece of land is inaccurate. Being the possession of a gentleman, the fief included organized manors, worked by native peasantry according to customary routine of labor. So to say the fief was more than a piece of land is quite an understatement, because along with the land, the manners and laborers who worked the land, uh, the fief was also went with it, and the fief was also encompassed by an immunity. Um, I'm hoping to discuss the medieval manor in more detail in the next episode. And we've already spent a significant amount of time talking about immunities in episodes four and five. So the point for right now is that the fief was more than just a land interest, but involved other agreements or understandings, including immunities from otherwise generally applicable public burdens, but may also include certain grants of, of public or governmental authority as well. Practically, this difference between possessing land as a recipient of the fief as opposed to possessing the land outright, which is referred to as allodial property, was significant, especially regarding inheritance. When a person who received the fief, which I will explain is called a vassal in a minute, when the vassal died, the property referred to the Lord and uh, reverted to the Lord, excuse me, unless the vassal's oldest son assumed their father's position as vassal to the Lord, which required the son to pledge homage and swear fealty to the Lord as his father had done as well. The fief itself remained invisible and passed to the oldest son. Allodial property was not subject to such requirements and could be divided innumerable times among the heirs of a deceased landowner. Thus, the key features typically associated with a fief include service, particularly military service, to the holder of the fief, land possession or use with a pertinent buildings and peasants, and immunities. Nor was the fief subjected to an unlimited number of divisions, and as such it would often maintain its value over time and provide a level of stability for a family, and for society in general. Now, going back to the term I was just using, the vassal, we need to talk about vassalage now. Vassalage is necessary to understanding medieval feudalism. With vassalage comes lordship, because if there is no vassal, there is no lord. Likewise, without a vassal, there is no fief. Consequently, we can safely say, even though feudalism derives its name from its connection to property and cattle, vassalage is really the glue that makes the entire system work. Vassalage constitutes a voluntary personal relationship between two parties, those parties being the Lord, from the Old English word layford, or from leif, or the modern word for that is loaf, and vassal, der derived from a Celtic word, was, W-A-S-S, -S, which was the word for a servant or a boy. 
Now, this relationship entailed mutual obligations to one another, but these obligations were very different. For the vassal, he would pledge both homage and fealty to the Lord. The Lord, in turn, was expected to provide a degree of protection and a benefit to the vassal, which was often but not necessarily a fief. Although mutual obligations existed, the entitlement to homage and fealty were not mutual. Only the subordinate vassal pledged homage and fealty to the Lord, not the other way around. And as we will see, the relationship between Lord and vassal was not based on equality, but was very hierarchical in nature. The inequality between Lord and vassal is evident in the rituals that form the relationship. And this is where we're going to talk about homage and fealty. A vassal would render his lord homage, from the Latin word homo, or become the man of another at an in-person ceremony, the ceremony being extremely significant as it was an open, observable event involving very specific physical gestures. Medieval historian Mark Bloch describes the ceremony of homage as follows, quote, Imagine two men face to face one wishing to serve, the other willing or anxious to be served. The former puts his hands together and places them, thus joined, between the hands of the other man. A plain symbol of submission, the significance of which was sometimes further emphasized by a kneeling posture. At the same time, the person proffering his hands utters a few words, a very short declaration, by which he acknowledges himself to be the man of the person facing him. Then the chief and subordinate kiss each other on the mouth, symbolizing accord and friendship. Such were the gestures, very simple ones, eminently fitted to make an impression on minds so sensitive to visible things, which served to cement one of the strongest social bonds known in the feudal era. Unquote. One can imagine a man is not going to subject himself to this type of intimate yet public display of personal commitment unless one truly intends it, which indeed was the point. And yet, as Christianity spread across Europe, a pledge of fealty, or in Latin, fidelitas, was added. Fealty further solidified the bond between lord and vassal. After the vassal completed the homage ritual, he then placed his hands on a copy of the holy scriptures or relics of a saint and swore an oath to be faithful to the Lord. This is, this is the fealty part. As any Christian should know, oath-taking is a very serious business. With such an oath, the vassal becomes bound to the Lord in the eyes of God. For the faithful Christian, like the sin of adultery, breaking an oath constituted a mortal sin and jeopardized one's eternal soul and one, unless one properly repented, confessed the sin, and reconciled with God. Now, having completed this two-part ritual, the vassal was now considered at the service, or the servi servituum, of his lord. In the early years of the Roman Empire, this term would have been used to describe a master-slave relationship, but by the 5th century AD, this negative connotation was lost. And this relationship between lord and vassal was at its core a personal one, much more than a legal one, although later would become recognized in law as, as legal systems developed. It was a permanent bond between two persons that only ended upon the death of either the lord or the vassal. 
While it was not uncommon for the children of either the lord or the vassal to assume the duties and obligations of this feudal bond upon the death of the original lord or vassal, the pledge of homage and fealty needed to be made again to solidify that bond. In order to try and get across the, the, the nature of this feudal bond, with some hesitation, I'm going to make an analogy here. And while not a perfect analogy, one can see the similarities between feudal and marriage bonds. Both constituted more than a simple contract or agreement between two parties to achieve a mutual benefit. With certain exceptions, the feudal bond was a permanent one, binding in the eyes of God, with mutual duties and obligations to one another. And like the marriage bond, the feudal bond constituted a fundamental component of medieval society upon which other connections and bonds were built. And before we leave this topic of marriage, one additional point must be made about marriage with respect to feudalism. Given the connection of vassalage to military service, it is not surprising that vassalage was limited to men. That is, women could not be vassals. However, women played an important role in this system. If the holder of a fief only had a daughter with no male heirs, her husband, so that's the original vassal's son-in-law, well, he could perform the necessary service owed to the Lord in her place, thereby maintaining the fief or the benefit within the family of the original vassal. So with these basic concepts in mind, now we can extend out this basic arrangement of the fief and vassalage beyond the first vassal who paid homage and swore fealty to the original lord. Recall that the primary service of a vassal owes to his lord is military service. While originally medieval battles after the collapse of the Roman Empire were fought on foot, Horses began to be utilized to the point that by the 9th century, it was expected that the vassal would render his military service on horseback. The man who offered such service was a knight, from the Old English word nicht, C-N-I-H-T, which meant a man-at-arms, a boy, or a servant. This was the equivalent of the French chevalier, derived from the Latin word cabali, which was Latin for horses. While the relationship between lord and vassal remained a personal one, that did not mean the service the vassal was expected to provide the lord was an individual one. What do I mean by that? Well, depending on the particular location, historical context, and terms of service, the vassal was typically asked to contribute a contingent of armed warriors to satisfy his obligations to the lord beyond his own individual service. That meant the vassal needed to find a way to recruit a cavalry that is contingent that that is a contingent of knights that would answer to him but serve the needs of the lord when required. To satisfy his obligations to the lord, a vassal then had several options. He could, of course, just ask for volunteers or hire other knights, pay them from his own coffers, and use them to satisfy his feudal obligations to the lord. Or if this is not feasible or desirable, another option would be to leverage the fief he held from his lord and sub-infudate to the knights, who would in turn become the original vassal's vassals. One could then be both a vassal to the lord above him and a lord to the vassal below him. This worked particularly well for those who happened to be vassals of the king, because the fiefs granted to the king's direct vassals were very large and quite lucrative. 
Assuming the original thief was significant enough to support multiple levels of subinfeudation, this process would continue until the thief was basically exhausted to the extent that the uh, to the extent that additional subinfeudation would not make any economic sense. With each level of subinfeudation, it would not be unusual for the lord to reserve a portion of the thief's bounty for himself to provide for his own family as well. This reserved portion is called a domain, D-E-M-E-S-N-E, from which we derive the modern word domain. Because each subinfeudation creates a new vassal subordinate to the lord above him, a patchwork of feudal rights with respect to the original fief is now created, while at the same time a hierarchy of rights, duties, and obligations among several lords and vassals is created over an extensive geographic location, with the highest lord, usually the king, at the top of this pyramid. This, of course, is further complicated if a vassal serves more than one lord, in which case there is not only a vertical hierarchy, but a horizontal integration among vassals. And then at the bottom of the pyramid would be those who work as the peasants on the manors uh, within this geographical expense, uh, expanse, providing the labor to maintain the manners. Finally, with regard to subinfeudation, we have to be careful not to confuse that with the division of ownership of a lodial property. Remember, division of land among heirs has to do with outright ownership of property, whereas under a feudal system, the vassals do not own the property in the modern sense, but have a feudal right to work and reap the benefits of the land subject to the duties and obligations of his lord. And those rights and duties may be delegated then to lower vassals. So far, I have been discussing the basic structure or framework in which the typical feudal system operated with the understanding that there were certainly uh, local variations and developments over time. To complete this picture, it is necessary now to consider other forms of feudal tenure. Military service was at its core the primary service of vassal owed his lord, but such service often needed to expand into areas beyond simply military night service, which certainly was a big deal. As a military ca campaign became wider and more expansive, a lord may require his vassals require from his vassals more than just homage, fealty, and night service. It became common for a lord to demand aid and hospitality from his vassals. Now, aid was simply a monetary payment to the lord, but usually made in connection with some predetermined event, such as the marriage of the lord's daughter or ransom paid to the lord's enemies in the event he was captured in battle. Hospitality was the lodging and entertainment a vassal was required to provide for his lord when the lord was within the domain of the vassal or even localities under the control of his subvassals. We discussed hospitality in the prior two episodes with respect to the king. But with feudalism, a vassal may also owe this hospitality to a non-royal lord. Remember that fiefs were often extensive, and it was not unusual for a lord to travel days on horseback from one end of a fief to another, which was necessary, especially in times of war. At times, the lord needed his vassals to come to him, and this vassal was also expected uh, and, and referred to as suit in court. 
because lords may summon vassals to his court from the Latin cohort, which is an enclosure group or retinue. Uh, because the lords may summon his vassals to court for the purpose of ascertaining the governing customs of the people under his control for purpose of maintaining the peace. The court would also serve a ceremonial function and also serve as the means by which vassals resolve disputes among themselves and render judgments. The feudal court began to replace those old Germanic assemblies, especially under the Franks, while the assemblies or the moots remained the primary court in Anglo-Saxon England, as we discussed in the last episode. But needless to say, it is obvious that the feudal notion of the court has remained with Western culture and continues to be used today in modern parlance uh, with both royal and legal connotations. Clerical vassalage must also be mentioned because as Christianity spread across Western Europe after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the church's rights and duties were also implicated within this wider system of mutual obligations. With some exceptions, priests, bishops, and abbots, uh, along with other forms of religious ecclesiastics, generally did not provide individual military service typically required of a vassal. But they too acted as lords to subordinate vassals who may not themselves be religious and could therefore provide military service on behalf of the clergyman who was also their lord. Clerics would also continue to provide the typical aid, hospitality, and responses to suits at court required of other lay vassals. The church, therefore, was just as much integrated into feudal society as any layman, with some exceptions that would become more fully developed and complicated in the later Middle Ages. This summary of feudalism only touches the surface when it comes to the many nuances, variations, and complexities involved with the feudalist system arising out of the ruins of the Western Roman Empire. The summary was not intended to cover manorial organization, principles of chivalry, the royal court, or ties of dependence among the lower orders. All of these topics must be reserved for future discussion. And with that, we will conclude for today. I am hopeful to discuss the medieval manorial system in the next episode as we continue our build-up to the main event which is going to be a discussion of the Magna Carta itself. <laughs>